0: No, I'm not Lauren and Anna. (laughs) Lauren's voice is a little under the weather today, so we'll have to wait for another time for their song, but we're looking forward to it when that time comes. So now if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3 with me, please, to verse 30, we will continue. And this amazing gospel that God has uh, preserved, had written and preserved for us, because it speaks just as pointedly and powerfully and loudly to us as it did uh, when when it was first penned. If you remember last week, uh, we were in a section where John the Baptist has had his disciples come to him, and they're a little uh, concerned a little worried that this man, Jesus, that, that John had been speaking about was now drawing a bigger, bigger crowd than John was. And they're, they're wondering, what's what's going on here, John? We, we were once, the, the, the we had the attention of the nation on us. People from all over Jerusalem were coming out to hear you speak and to be baptized, even from all around Judea. And Now we're hearing that more people are going to hear Jesus, this Jesus speak. You remember how John pointed them to the fact that his role was not to be the center of attention. His his role was simply to point people to Jesus, to simply make the way for the coming one, the Messiah. He, He likened himself to the best man or the friend of the bridegroom. His goal was to see the bride and the groom joined together by the end of the the marriage ceremony, right? That's what he rejoiced in, and that was his point. And he wrapped that all up with verse 30, saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus needs to have the attention. Jesus needs to have the glory. Jesus is the one who is now the one we've been waiting for. And we stop right there, which was a great place to stop, summing that up. However, this section's not done. And as the verses 31 down through the end of the chapter continue, we get the reasons why Jesus must increase. He's gonna, the gospel here is going to talk a lot about Jesus. Now, there, there is some question here about who is speaking to us in these next verses. In verse 30, clearly John the Baptist was speaking. It could be that at this point, then John, the gospel writer, steps in and gives an explanation. It's hard to tell because the text doesn't let us in on that. So a lot of scholars and and commentators think that at verse 31, John, the gospel writer, the apostle, picks up from there and gives us an explanation. Either way, we can say John wrote it or said it, right? Right? came from John, we're just not sure which one. Either way, the Holy Spirit inspired those words so that they would be here to help us know better about Jesus. Why must Jesus increase? Well, follow along with me and we'll find out. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Why must Jesus increase? Well, John jumps right into that. He says, "He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks from the. He who is a." comes from heaven is above all. Do you notice that he he said that twice? He who comes from above. Then he says he who comes from heaven is above all. Kind of takes that that part about he who's from the earth and sandwiches it between those, right? Obviously, it's important. God repeats things. You say, oh, he wants us to get that. Don't let that slip past you. Now, you think John may believe we might forget it maybe we do sometimes jesus isn't just another man he's not even just he's not even just a great man or a good teacher he came down from heaven as the son of god to be with and to save lost sinful people He is above all in rank and power and position, and even his mission is above all. He didn't have to come here, did he? But he is the Son of God. He is the light. And so, of course, John the Baptist has to decrease in people's estimation because he doesn't want them to have their focus on him, but on the one who came from above. John the Baptist is like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not anyone that you should be stuck on. Look above, look higher, look for the one who came from heaven, who heaven is made for, and whose glory is fully displayed in heaven. Of course, he must increase. By contrast, John the Baptist says he comes from the earth, right? And really, it traces it all the way back to Adam. right? Adam, when he was created, our original forefather, was made from the dust of the earth. He literally came out of the earth. And these, these of words all mean to come out of, as a source. His origin is this planet and the dirt that God created on it. Now, God then breathed life into Adam. Made him something far more than just a creature. Made him in his own image. Gave him real life. But of course, Adam took himself and all his descendants into death by sinning. And so really, the the great advantage that we had of a real spiritual life was forfeited when mankind entered into sin, right? And so really, to say that we are of the earth is so true. We, we, As a, as a whole, as a, as a race, as people, have rejected that which really matters. And so any human being besides Jesus is simply of the earth. We speak out of our experience on the earth. We speak with a perspective that's trapped here, in a sense, right? And so John along with all of us, is just an earth dweller with a limited, distorted perspective unless God intervenes. And so, of course, Jesus must increase in the estimation of the people who are seeing what's going on. Because John is simply a man, a sinful man who needs Jesus to save him. So John is very happy to step aside and say, Look, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, here is the one who is from above, the the Son of God. He came from above. And yet, unfortunately, people didn't listen, did they? Jesus came speaking with a testimony from heaven, from heaven's perspective at the end of verse verse 31. And and throughout his ministry, he emphasized his perfectly intimate relationship with his Father, and that everything he received from the Father, he spoke. And so his source was the Father, right? His source was God. But he also has his own personal knowledge of heaven and what heaven is like. John's testimony is simply pointing to the one who has firsthand knowledge of heaven. You remember what he said to Nicodemus back in verse 11? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Oh, this is very much a parallel to that, isn't it? When and, I, and I, as I pointed out at that time, I think that "we" means we—the the Father, Son, the Spirit—speak of what we know. So they know of what is heavenly, what is over everything, right? And what is everywhere God's truth. But take a look as well at John chapter seventeen, verses five through eight. Uh, Jesus will later speak about how it is he he had a glory with the Father before he ever came here. John 17, verses five through eight. And this is as he's getting, the night that he was arrested, he's praying this, this prayer to his Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was once glorified with the Father as God. Stop and think about what that, that's like for a man who's, who's brought himself down to earth and lived among us, among sin, among people who have turned on him and hate him. He says, I once was with you and we in all of our glory, right? He goes on and says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus comes, and in submission to his Father, because of the way the Godhead works, he speaks just the words of the Father. And yet... He, he has experienced all the glory of being God the Son. He has experienced all the glories of heaven himself. He comes with a, a perfectly, absolutely true testimony of what really is. He comes with God's perspective. And yet, as I just said, at the end of verse 32, he, he's rejected. Says that, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I need to get back to chapter three. <clears throat> it says, and no one receives his testimony. His testimony is, the, is the perfect. It's things that we wouldn't have come up with on our own. It's what we truly need to understand the universe and, and our lives and, and our place in all of that. And it says, humanity as a whole said, no, we don't want what you have to offer. It's interesting, it's an echo of what John, uh, the, the, the gospel writer, told back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. If you remember, he, speaking of the word of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So here's Here's the tragic situation laid out for us once again. The one who had the perfect witness, the perfect words for us, is rejected. And in essence, it's, it's calling him, calling God a liar. Uh, go to John's writings in his letters. 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 10. <clears throat> it says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Oh, there's good news. You believe, you accept his testimony. That testimony, that truth comes to reside within you, right? But the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So says you can't reject Jesus' words without saying, God, you are lying. that's a pretty serious thing to do, isn't it? To call God a liar? But what we're being told here in John chapter 3 is, on the whole, that is what humanity has done. That's what this world has said to God. No, you're a liar. No, your son didn't come bearing the truth. No, we know better than you know. Thankfully, there's verse 33. Because as he goes on, he says, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. There are some who do believe. Uh, Before he says, no one accepts his testimony. It's a generalization. Humanity has rejected the message on the whole. But the one who has perfect Perfectly accurate and true testimony the world doesn't want. On the other hand, there are some who, by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, take Jesus' witness into themselves, and they believe it and are changed by it. And then John tells us something kind of amazing. He says that he who has received his testimony has set his seal to the fact that God is True, And if you remember what a seal was in in that day, I mean, it's still used somewhat today, but not not nearly so much. But you would take some wax or some clay, and someone would have a stamp that they would put into that wax or clay, and it would leave the image of that stamp in it, and it would say, the person who owns the seal has put their seal into this. Uh, We see examples of that when Jesus was put into the tomb. And they put the the Roman governor's seal on the tomb right, and said, nobody can open this. So the seal spoke of his authority there. You might put your seal on a letter. And only the the right person could break that seal and open the letter and read it. Again, speaking of the authority. But you could also put a seal on something and say, I put my stamp of approval on it. Something like a signature, only more serious. That's kind of the idea here is that when we believe the truth that Jesus speaks, the truth that comes from God, we are like that seal on God's Word. And we give give testimony then to His Word that, yes, it does make a difference. It really does ring true and change lives. Because God is true. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here he's he's talking uh, about the the revelation that was given to the nation of Israel. Because he's been proving that both Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners and are condemned before God. Having done that and shown that about the Jewish people, he says, well, what advantage has the Jew? In other words, what good is it to be God's chosen people. He says, or what is the benefit of circumcision, being part of that covenant covenant, uh, people? He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the, the words God gave through the prophets. What then, if some did not believe... Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Does it make God's words untrue because people don't believe it? No, he says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so God is true regardless of what men do, right? And so what impact does it do that if we believe his his testimony, we put our seal on the fact that God is true? Is it necessary? No. Is it glorifying to him? Yes, it is. See, God doesn't need us to verify that he is true because he is true regardless of whether we believe or not. But it does bring him glory when our seal of belief agrees with what he is like, it shows him to be the God that he is. It it becomes a witness to itself, or itself to to other people as well, an encouragement for them to believe. So as we believe and our lives are changed, there's a sense in which the the impress is made in us. We're the wax. We're the clay. And God impresses on us, and it's testimony then to all around. God is true. And here's some poof. Look at what he has done in the life of one that has believed he is true. It's very important for us, and it's a great privilege for us as well. Well, John continues in verse 34, back in John 3. It tells us more about why it is Jesus must increase. It says, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And this whole section is just loaded with great truth about who Jesus is and and how he's come and and why. Well, first of all, it says, he whom God has sent. And you stop and consider someone who is, is sent as a representative, for example, of the king. And when the king sends somebody, and he tells you something, it's as if the king were speaking himself, right? And how the representative of the king is, is treated is how you are treating the king. The words spoken by the representative You have to take them as though that that king was standing right in front of you saying those words. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 10, 1 through 4, for a practical example. Here we have during the days of King David. And King David sends some representatives in this passage and see what happens. It says, now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died. And Huna Hanun, sorry, his son became king in his place. Then David said, "I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me." So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Huna Hanun, their lord, "Do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent?" consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off half of their garments in the middle of their hips and sent them away. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the verses, but can you guess what happened next? War. War between Israel and the Ammonites. Because they, they treated the messengers of David with great disrespect. They shamed them horribly. And it's as if they had done that same thing to David. There was no other alternative but for war to happen, and they knew it. They started hiring soldiers afterwards, realizing what they'd done. It's the same thing with God. He didn't just send servants, but he sent his own son with his words. And when we reject his words, can we expect a good result from God? No, not at all. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God. And this is not just anyone, but someone who was prophesied that he would come. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, 18 and 19. Long before the nation even was established in the land, or not long, not long before they were established in the land, these words were given to Moses. This is, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, or your translation may say their brethren, like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, It shall come about, listen carefully, that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And this is the prediction of the coming of the Messiah. Remember they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? That's what they meant. They're coming back to this passage. Are you this one whose words will be responsible to believe and to obey? John the Baptist is like, no, not me. It's the one I'm pointing to. And here in verse 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. This is the prophet. This is the one who you're responsible for what his words say. You will account to God directly for that. Jesus basically explained the same thing in chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. He, he just said it a little, in a few more words. So here's his explanation, better than mine. 12, 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. It's the same thing we were just seeing out of Deuteronomy, isn't it? Jesus is saying this is this is it. This is me. And it's not just God's word in general, but, he, but it says there in verse 34, the words of God. It's, it's the Greek word "rema," which means the specific words of God. It's not just some general idea, but those individual thoughts that God has for us. Jesus spoke, and we're responsible for those individual concepts, ideas, obedience to commands. And it's not just that Jesus is working, just listening to the Father. We have the whole Trinity involved here in the end of the verse. It says, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And I believe what it's talking about is the Father gives the Son, the Holy Spirit, without limit. He doesn't measure him out by the cupful. It's kind of a crude way of putting it. Because like us, in the body of Christ, we, we represent Jesus on earth, right? How how is the Spirit demonstrated in us? Well, he gives some certain uh, manifestations of the Spirit, right? Different gifts. And so we each get a manifestation that when you bring together the whole, you start to get a picture, or you should get a picture, of the glory of God. And so in a sense, he does measure it out to us according to where we are in the body, what he wants us to do, and our frail limitations, doesn't mean we lack anything. We've got far more in the Spirit than we need. But on the Son, eternal God, no measure, the full power of the Holy Spirit indwelt Jesus as a human being. The Old Testament predicted that. Isaiah spoke of it. A number of places that he would have the Spirit. John the Baptist witnessed the Spirit descending on him. So we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all speaking whenever Jesus spoke. His words must be listened to. But then verse 35 takes it further. The Father loves the Son. We heard in verse 16, for God so loved the world, right? But He loved His, his Son first, right? For eternity past, he has loved the Son. It's a bond far beyond what we as sinful human beings can grasp and understand. And love does some interesting things. God loved his Son, and he gave all things into his hands. Understanding that giving all things into his hand meant that he would go and die for human beings. All things says, is given into, or have, been, have been given into his hands. So certainly he must increase, right? Who has it all under his authority? Who has it all as his possession? Well, Jesus does. So of course, John the Baptist needs to fade out. Jesus needs to increase in our estimation, in our understanding, in our worship to keep the focus in, his, in John the Baptist's case, or even to keep the ministry going that he had when its time was past, would be outside of what God is doing. It didn't make sense. His son is what everything is about. So as long as he was left there, to keep pointing to the son, keep pointing to the son, yes. But it was always to get people to follow Jesus He must increase. His mission to save those enslaved to sin in this world system had to be the key focus. And this also, of course, points out the last part of those verses in Deuteronomy, that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I'll call him to account. So everyone is accountable to this one, the prophet, the son. He must increase everything has been given into his hands. And we're used to hearing Jesus talk about that from Matthew 28, 19, right? Before the, the, uh, the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. And we think, well, yeah. Jesus went, to the, Jesus went to the cross, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again. And then the Father gave him all things into his hands. Then the Father gave him all authority. Well, listen to what Jesus said before he went to the cross in John chapter 13. Verses one through five. <clears throat> Here at the Lord's Supper. Now the feast, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During dinner, the the devil, having uh, having been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father, listen, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice it says he knew that all things had been given into his hands. And what did he do? Did he get rid of Judas who was going to betray him? No. Did he overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom right then? No said he washed his disciples' feet. That would include Judas. He served, even though he had all power to do anything he wanted already, right? It had already happened. It always was his. What did he do with that power? Well, he came and he worked with great humility, with meekness, and he served us, not just washing feet, but giving up his own life taking death into himself for all of humanity. Hard to really comprehend, isn't it? He didn't go in weakness. He had all of the power that he could ever need. What did he do with it? He loved us. Gave himself for us. He served us. And then... John finishes out chapter 3 with giving us the bottom line. What does this all mean? What difference does all of this make? Well, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here it is. You're in one of two categories. Those who are believing ones who keep on having eternal life. And I say it that way because in John's wording, it's very simple, but it's also very specific. And the verbs believing and having are present tense verbs, which mean they're ongoing, things that are ongoing. And so when we believe, we put our belief in him, we become believing ones. It's not just that, oh, I believed at this point in time and then I I haven't really believed him since. Now, we're joined with him and we become believing ones. And as soon as we do that, we are having, in an ongoing way, eternal life. So it provides us with that immediately and it never ends. These are states that are ours once we believe. That's one category. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? That's the question. Are you, have you believed in him and become a believing one and have eternal life and are no longer condemned because you don't believe him? Because that's where he goes next, right? The other category is, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The one who does not believe, or is what some of your versions say, as mine said here, does not obey. It's really that the word that's there is not able to be persuaded. And so if you're persuaded, then you will obey, right? But if you refuse to be persuaded by the words that you've been given from heaven, you won't obey either. You won't do the things that Jesus told you to do you won't do the things that is where the way everything is going because god is sovereignly moving it that way so you can refuse to be persuaded that this is true but it comes with a consequence he says if you don't aren't persuaded you will not see life sin puts us in a place of death Entering into a trusting relationship with Jesus to receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, as verse 16 tells us, is the only way to even get to know what real life is. You might have noticed, especially if you're a believer and you look back on your life before you knew Jesus, that life without the hope of Jesus is just a dim shadow of what real life is. And when you come to know Jesus, you have life. Before that, you were alive. Your body lived. But you didn't see life. You didn't even get why, why you were alive, really. But when you believe in him, then, he says, you will see life. But if you don't believe, you won't even get it. You won't even see life. And that's why we're here to call to people, here's here's real life. And the terrible thing is, though, the wrath of God continues to abide on you if you will not be persuaded to believe in him. It's the same thing that was said back in verse 18. He who believes in him, speaking of Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's, our, that's our situation. If we haven't believed, is condemned. Every human being outside of Jesus was in that category. Condemned to start because of our sinfulness. God in his great love for us has given a, a clear and simple way to escape the great, at the greatest possible cost to himself his own son giving his life for us. He wants us to come to Jesus to escape what we deserve. And so I would call on you, if you're in this category of those who have not been persuaded by Jesus, get out from under that that judgment while you can. And get into having eternal life, always, in an ongoing way. You can do it right where you sit today if you haven't been persuaded before and you say "Now, Jesus I believe I am persuaded I want you to forgive my sins on the basis of the fact that you took my punishment on the cross I want you to give me life because I haven't been living up until now I need life that goes on forever and is real life it's him that does it you can come talk to any of us who are believers here and get help with that if you want but it's Jesus who saves you. Just go to him. And this morning we've, we've, we've considered a great deal of truth about Jesus and about ourselves. Now, if this has just been another sermon, it will leave you where you were when you walked in. If you believe and are persuaded by God about what we've talked about today, it will change you. Jesus will increase. He will grow in your heart and in your mind. Even if you've been knowing him, even if you've been having eternal life for many, many years, when you hear his word and you reaffirm to him and you grow in your belief, yes, I believe who you are, he's going to move you beyond where you are. He will increase. And all the other things appropriately will decrease. But remember, Jesus' words have to be believed. You have to be persuaded by them. Don't just stay where you've been before. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to give us life. And not just uh, at that moment when we receive Jesus, we believe in him, and we are joined to him, but you keep on expanding that life as we grow, as we become more and more uh, convinced of who you are and what difference it makes in our lives. And I pray as, as each of us is, is sitting here right now, that you'd be prompting us as to how we need to truly believe who you are more. Uh, there would be areas of our life we would give over to you that we've held back that we would move forward with a greater confidence because of who we've realized this morning you are. I'm so thankful that, that you aren't a God that uh, that sits at a distance, uh, but you are right there and actually dwell in those who put their faith in Jesus. I look forward to the, to the growth and the change that you will bring about in the days ahead. We ask this, we praise you in Jesus' name.